Right folks, continuing on to the last lesson of the troubles. So we're dealing with the same learning outcome as before. Um, so basically what we've covered so far is both the long-term and short-term causes of the troubles. Um, we've looked at the events that took place that kind of towards the late 1960s and across the 1970s. And in this episode, we're going to look at, I suppose, or just zone in on some key events that took place over the 1980s. And then we're going to look to the 1990s as people started to work towards peace. So a key event that we haven't even brought up just yet, and I'm the worst I could end up down so many different rabbit holes around this, is the hunger strikes. So its roots kind of started in the 1960s. Um, it started basically in 1976 when the special category status was removed from prisoners who were who were arrested on any charges to deal with the troubles. So like up to this point, um, if an IRA member was arrested for a murder, um, they were not considered just general population prisoners. They were considered what we call a political prisoner. What this actually meant in real life for them was that they could wear their own clothes. They had the right to more visits within prison. They did not stay within the general population of prisons and they often actually stayed amongst themselves. So like IRA members would be grouped with IRA members. So as this special category status was removed from the political prisoners um, in the late 1970s, IRA prisoners in Maine prison in special units called the H-Blocks, started to stage these dirty and blanket protests. So this meant that the prisoners refused to wear clothes, they refused to wash themselves, they were famous for smearing their feces on the walls of their cell in order, um, I suppose, to protest against this change in their category status and to get this status of political prisoner back. Now we could spend a lot of time looking at the specific events that took place and the kind of process of change, how we went from blanket to dirty to hunger strikes. But we're going to skip straight forward to when these protests escalated in 1981 under a group of prisoners led by Bobby Sands as they went on hunger strike and refused all food until their status as political prisoners was returned. So these hunger strikers or hunger strikes generated sympathy all over the world but especially in the Republic of Ireland. People were really sympathetic towards um, the hunger strikes. Um, when we, I suppose people just admired the strikers' willingness to die for their beliefs. So like this drum of support did start to build around the hunger strikes, and it did also lead to this considerable, considerable amount of anti-British feeling um, to arise across the country. So as the hunger strikes progressed, tensions rose between Britain and Ireland as Margaret Thatcher, the now uh, British Prime Minister, took a very hardline approach against the hunger strikes. She just out straight um, refused to give in to any of the hunger strikers' demands um, and she actually went as far as claiming she would not negotiate with terrorists. So as the hunger strikes progressed, Sinn Féin basically could just see firsthand the popularity that Bobby Sands was generating and they just seen this as the perfect opportunity to expand their political wing. So in order to do this, Bobby Sands was put forward to win a seat to Westminster and he actually was elected to Westminster. Um, he obviously could not attend and 
he probably would have abstained regardless as that was the policy of Sinn Féin at the time. So he would not have taken a seat even if he wasn't in prison. But this was just a huge propaganda win for Sinn Féin as they had a person who was essentially about to die on hunger strike um, elected to Westminster. Despite all this, Thatcher refused to back down to Sinn Féin, to the hunger strikers, to Bobby Sands. And then really sadly and unfortunately, Bobby Sands died after 66 days on hunger strike. Um, following Bobby Sands' death, a further nine more prisoners died on the same hunger strike before the IRA actually decided to call it off. Um, throughout these deaths, Thatcher refused to give in to their demands and actually claimed that the hunger strikers were making a willing choice to kill themselves. So as a result of the hunger strikes, international attention had been drawn to the troubles. Um, Sands' election also proved that the IRA could pursue a political strategy as well as the military strategy. And this event, um, for me anyway, just signaled Sinn Féin's transition to electoral politics. So following this event, Sinn Féin tried to win support on the basis of like political policies and their arguments within the political sphere rather than just um, chasing this one-dimensional military approach to winning Ireland's independence back. Now we are skipping through a lot of I suppose smaller nuanced events that do play into the big picture but we're going to zoom in to 1985 now with the Anglo-Irish Agreement. Um, and I suppose by this point, the British and Irish governments were just looking for any possible solution to work together on the issue of Northern Ireland and just to come to a resolution here. While people pursued this political solution to the issue, um, in vi violence did continue. And this kind of in turn led to Sinn Féin gaining more support. Um, but we can kind of focus in on one key individual here that we haven't come across yet. And that's Irish Taoiseach at the time, Garrett Fitzgerald. Uh, Fitzgerald basically just wanted to prove that the political process could work to deliver change in Northern Ireland and he was willing to put a lot of effort and a lot of time into achieving this. In order to prove that this political process could work, um, Fitzgerald and Margaret Thatcher agreed to increase security cooperation um, and basically just agreed that the Republic of Ireland must and would have a role in the running of Northern Ireland within this Anglo-Irish agreement that they were going to come to. Um, so within this agreement, Thatcher stated that the Irish government had the right to be consulted and to put forward proposals through an intergovernmental conference. Now, if we just think about how is this going to sit within the nationalist and unionist populations of Northern Ireland, um, it absolutely outraged the unionists. Um, to them, this idea of the Republic having any role in governing Northern Ireland was a betrayal of the Union. Um, at this point, if I was teaching this within the classroom, I like to stop and think about the basic principles or wants of unionism. They want to protect the Union between Britain and Northern Ireland at all times. And they see in this Anglo-Irish agreement as a threat or a betrayal to that Union. So in protest to this unionist um, staged huge protests all over Northern Ireland with some points um, up to 100,000 people marching in Belfast. But we've seen the same kind of tactic adopted by Thatcher as she refused to back down and ignored all of their attempts to kind of overthrow this Anglo-Irish agreement. 
Um, I suppose it's important to mention maybe the SDLP here and John Hume, as they, of course, they they welcome this agreement. Um, and John Hume essentially used this relationship um, with the Irish government to pressure, to put a bit more pressure on Britain through this new intergovernmental conference. I'm really conscious of just glossing over events here as they all do or all are quite impactful. But in the following years after the Anglo-Irish agreement, both governments um, really did work hard to bring all parties together to form a new power sharing executive. So both the Irish government and the British government engaged in secret talks with Sinn Féin and the IRA um, just to work towards a solution or how to bring this violence to an end. And these eventually resulted in the Downing Street Declaration of 1993. This declaration just set out the terms basically for all parties to begin talks on the future of Northern Ireland and specifically stated that parties only committed to peace could be involved. What does this mean in real terms, you might ask? Um, it meant that Sinn Féin could only be involved in these talks on the future of Northern Ireland if the IRA agreed to a ceasefire which it did in August 1994, and loyalist groups followed with their own ceasefires in October the same year. So after these ceasefires were agreed, I suppose came four years of difficult talks and negotiations. Um, the IRA ceasefires even broke down at one stage in 1996, with a bomb being set off in the London Docklands, um, which we discussed earlier. But eventually... Direct talks between all party members began under the chairmanship of U.S. Senator George Mitchell. Um, I suppose it's important to note the fact that the U.S. were now involved and maybe note the main personalities involved in negotiating the Good Friday Agreement. So we have David Trimble from the Ulster Unionists, John Hume with the SDLP, Jerry Adams and Sinn Féin, Bertie Ahern and the Irish government and Tony Blair for the British government. So just before Easter in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement was agreed. And it basically just aimed to secure, I suppose, sustainable peace in Northern Ireland. So its main terms included the following. Firstly, that there would be power sharing between all main political parties. Secondly, that there would be some cross-border bodies set up to kind of just link the North and South on internal affairs, non-controversial affairs, um, that the Republic would give up its constitutional claim on Northern Ireland. Um, furthermore, just the decommissioning or surrendering of weapons by terrorist groups. Um, really importantly, I suppose, the reform of the RUC and just creating the PSNI, which was a new police force, and... I suppose, working towards the withdrawal, the slow withdrawal of most British soldiers. So in a referendum on both sides of the border, an agreement was accepted. 71% of people in Northern Ireland agreed and 94% in the Republic agreed. But putting this agreement into practice was difficult. Um, each side never really did keep 100% its part of the deal. But what's really important and a promising sign that there was a never return to the level of violence by both terrorist groups. And we can even zone in on 2007 when Ian Paisley, the controversial um, loyalist leader of the DUP, um, and Martin McGuinness of Sinn Féin, both were once sworn enemies, were elected as first deputy and deputy ministers of Northern Ireland, just really showing how far the North has come since the trouble. 
But if anyone, I suppose, has been paying attention to the news recently, they will have heard a debate basically in the Irish media around the possibility of a United Ireland being achieved over the next 10 to 20 years. If we haven't been listening, I definitely recommend just putting your ear to the ground a little here. Um, it's an extremely important debate taking place at the moment. Just with the likes of Brexit, COVID-19, um, affecting history as we know it. Like, if you kind of do listen in to this debate, you'll hear references to everything we've studied over the course of the last three years in Irish history. Um, you'll also just get an amazing insight how t- into how passionate unionists and nationalists are on this issue. Um, we are fortunate enough to not live in a time where this violence has taken place. So I find that it's actually hard for us to grasp how divided the people on this island are. And I think it's just fascinating to keep up to date with. And I'd highly encourage every single junior cycle historian to try stating, clued in also. Now, I know this is quite long, guys, so I'm going to finish up. Thank you so much, and I'll speak to you soon.